Flight 229, you're clear for takeoff. Just like a flight plan, you have to know where you're going and how you will get there when you plan for retirement. Let Ryan Fleming help you chart out a course for your retirement with his intimate knowledge of financial planning and the airline industry. It's time for the Pilot's Advisor. Welcome to another edition of the Pilot's Advisor. We've got a special show for you today. I'm Walter Storholt alongside the Pilot's Advisor himself, Ryan Fleming. And Ryan, I'm really looking forward to the guest that you brought on the show today. Someone who a lot of our listeners probably know of, if not know in some way, shape, or form personally as well. And uh, we're in good shape for a fascinating conversation today. Tell us a little bit about who we're getting ready to chat with. Well, we have a very special guest on the show today. And for many of you, he does not need any introduction at all. Albie, Aaron Hagen. And uh, for the airline industry, many people at FedEx and other airlines, he's helped us uh, interview for our airline jobs and the rest of our lives. We want to get some uh, perspectives from him today. But for those of you that don't know Albie, Mr. Hagen, can you give us a little background on your consulting business and exactly what you do? And sure. also, you are a uh, 767 FedEx captain in the airline industry since, I believe you said, 2002. Yeah, I started my career as an airline pilot in 2002 after 14 years of active duty. Kind of like you with, with your financial business, I didn't necessarily start out to create an empire. I just saw a need where I could help a few friends. And... Around 2002, I, after successfully interviewing a couple airlines, I realized that some of the skills that I'd picked up in the Air Force, briefing, debriefing, I was a CRM platform instructor and a rated aerospace physiologist, a lot of background in human factors. And I also outpunted my coverage a little bit when I married my wife. She's a former Miss Mississippi finalist uh, from a couple of, uh, couple of passes through Vicksburg and the Miss Mississippi pageant. And anyway, all of that leads up to a lot of experience communicating a lot of experience, interview coaching, judging beauty pageants, things like that. And I found that uh, some of the skill sets that you use in an interview weren't necessarily common knowledge and stuff that seemed like pretty common sense to me wasn't necessarily as easily identified to some of my pilot friends. So I kind of sketched out a course and then 2002, 2003, 2004, it really took off. Since then, we've helped probably 20,000 pilots across our industry. If you look at companies like uh, Delta, you're probably going to find, oh, 3,000 or more of their pilot forces used us. Probably half the pilots at FedEx, a couple thousand each at JetBlue, Southwest, United. So we've had a pretty positive impact on our industry. It's been a lot of fun because, you know, obviously it's a job. It's a business where we help people communicate. But along the way, like Ryan, you make some friends, you make some connections and people that you end up staying in touch with through the entire process. And that's been one of the biggest joys to me about it is getting to watch people make that transition to the airline and watch what they do with it. And, you know, to maybe have contributed a little bit along the way to that success. Well, I think it's great having you on the show. Uh, and I think that you have a lot to offer a lot of or many of our listeners. But what's even more crazy about today is the whole industry is dealing with this coronavirus and we're in a much different place than we were three to four weeks ago. And so we want to get your perspective today on many of those issues that are out there and also some of the other hardships you might have seen or had in your own personal experience being in the airline industry since 2002. 
with the dot-com crash of 2000, uh, 2008 with the uh, mortgage crisis, and also what we're dealing with today. So we wanted to welcome you to the show. We very much appreciate having you today. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. I've seen three really hard down cycles since I've been interested in being an airline pilot. The first one really didn't affect me that much, but it probably caught some of our senior guys that are out there in the industry through respective airlines. And that was after the first Gulf War, there was a, a drawdown. And this was actually the first time in 1992 that uh, Delta ever furloughed. But uh, we have some pilots at the company that I work at, FedEx, that were actually furloughed by Delta, came over to FedEx, and then never went back during that period. And how it did affect me was in 1995, as I was looking at my first window to get out of the Air Force, the industry hadn't completely rebounded yet. And partly because of that and partly because of some choice assignments, I made the choice to continue take the first aviation uh, continuation bonus and stay in the Air Force another seven years. Uh, so I say that was the, the first chance that I really had for daylight getting out of active duty, and I let it pass. And, and part of that was the hangover from that period. Uh, I don't know how long it really took for that to rebound because it wasn't affected directly, but I know that by 1997, 1998, there was a huge hiring surge at the legacies, and that's what led to you know, some retention problems in the Air Force, keeping pilots and Navy as well. The one that really affected me most personally was the one people are probably most familiar with, and that was the post 9-11 uh, downturn in the industry. A lot of people don't realize, you as a financial planner probably do, that up through the late 90s into early 2000, the stock market had been on a tremendous tear, the tech bubble, all those things. And sometime 2000, 2001, that started to pop and unwind a little bit. And it affected me because, again, I was a Delta wannabe, always wanted to fly for Delta. And Delta actually put a hiring freeze on in July of 2001. That was before 9-11 by a couple of months. And a lot of people don't remember that. But the airlines were already a little overextended with costs, uh, lower load factors. They weren't able to get the yield out of the tickets that they had been you know, when everybody was a dot-com millionaire. So when the attacks of 9-11 happened, it was a catalyst for real bloodletting in the industry. 2002 through 2004, there were a lot of furloughs. And although this did not directly affect me uh, and, and my employment, I was getting out of the Air Force, dropped my papers in 2001. And, you know, I, I was fortunate in that I was hired by JetBlue and FedEx, and both of them ultimately offered me a class date in January of 2002. What happened, though, was because I didn't have a good advisor like Brian uh, working for me, I had gone out there like a lot of my contemporaries and bought stocks on the margin and played a lot of games with a rising market. And when the markets finally reopened several days after 9-11, my phone was ringing off the hook with Schwab calling me and advising me that I had to liquidate positions for all the margin calls that I had. So I had always planned to walk out of the Air Force with about $200,000 was my goal or my target. And uh, I ended up, by the time it was all over, leaving the Air Force with about $35,000 to my name to start this new career. And that was terrifying. I felt like a complete failure, like a, a bad person, like I had jeopardized my family's future. So why am I telling you all this? I know there's a lot of people out there right now that are scared. I know there's a lot of people that are listening to a financial podcast going, hey, how am I going to make this work? And, and what I will tell you, 
when I went through this the first time is, you know, I, it was a gut check. And I looked at my wife and I said, you know, I can pull these separation papers. I can stay in the Air Force. Maybe this isn't for me. And she was very courageous. She said, hey, I've got a job and this is what you've always wanted to do. We're fine. We're going to make it work. And, and we did. And you know what? The Air National Guard, where I was working, had extra man days. And I was fortunate enough to be working at a company that was not furloughing at the time, but actually still hiring, albeit slowly. Uh, FedEx was hiring in 2002. So we got through that. And we actually thrived on it. And my advice to the listeners out there that are a little bit terrified right now is, you know, my own experience and then looking back as an interview coach, talking to people who went through the experience at the passenger carriers when I was helping them prepare for interviews a year or two or three later, some of them were changing carriers, going to companies that were still hiring like FedEx, Southwest, JetBlue. Other pilots were coming out of the regional airlines and had gone through that downturn and were now finally getting a chance at a brass ring job because United and Delta both started hiring a little bit. And of course, uh, the other airlines had recovered some and were, were hiring in pretty big numbers. But when I talked to people that had gone through that and, and said, how'd you get through? It, their stories paralleled mine a lot. And I will tell you, I remember after 9-11 being shocked and stunned and devastated watching my financial house of cards completely implode. And I know you train people to manage money, to invest money, to use money. But the thing that, that I thought about at the time was, hey, money doesn't define me. It's a tool. It's a resource. And it's good to have more resources than less, but it's still just a tool. And what really struck me, because I was living in Lynn Haven, Florida at the time uh, on the outskirts of Panama City, was that you know whether I had $200,000 in the bank or was just getting by, if I was riding my bike in the neighborhood and the sun was shining on me, it really didn't make how much difference I had in the bank. The sun wasn't going to be any brighter. You know, yeah, Sorry to interrupt you there, but I think that's a great point that you and I have talked about offline, which I think is very, very important. The sun's still going to come up. We will yeah. get through this. Yeah, it seems so, so painful right now, but but life goes on. And the, the other thing I wanted to kind of redirect as well is we talked a little bit about, you know, from a financial perspective, we think about the dot-com crash of 2000. And then, of course, you know, the mortgage crash of 2008. And now here we have this coronavirus. But this is a little bit different than 2008. I mean, when you think about 2008 with the airline industry, I mean, was it really a blip on the radar or what, you know, what's, what do you see the coronavirus with what's going on with the passenger carriers right now? And we've talked a little bit about the economy, what it might look like in six months, according to you. Well, I'm certainly no economist. I'm a guy with a 2.48 GPA from Auburn University in aviation management. I, you were not allowed to bring up that you went to Auburn. We talked about <laughs> Yeah, but uh, here's one of the things that I will say about 9-11 and about the 2008 downturn, because airlines did furlough again in 2008. Tragically, you know, United and Northwest, before they merged with Delta, brought back furloughees, had them leave positions, whatever, come back, get trained, and then furloughed them again. So it was a real double whammy for a lot of families. The difference between now and then, in 2008, a lot of people felt a little bit isolated. Uh, they were going through this alone. And, you know, if you bought a home and were underwater, maybe the guy next door bought his at a different time and he was in a better shape, you know, and lots of jobs are being lost, not just in aviation, but across the, the board, banking, finance, retail, real estate, construction. But at the same time, I thought it was a very 
uneven outcome. There were people that were doing okay, and there were people that were just devastated. In this case, with the coronavirus, it's sort of where, hey, we're all in this together. Additionally, the economy in 2007, 2008, 2009, with that liquidity crunch, people were concerned about the viability of the banking system. They were concerned about the value of the U.S. dollar. The economy itself was a little bit shaky. So we had a a big systemic problem back then, which we don't really have right now. Yeah, we're coming off a pretty strong economy. And I kind of look at this as a ditch in the road, you know? I mean, it's a deep ditch. We're going to go across it and it's going to jar our teeth. It's going to hurt a little bit. But we got sound machinery. A, A big difference too for us in the airline industry, and I know that's where you're focusing right now with the pilots, is, you know, love love the Trump administration or hate them. It was made very clear from the beginning of this bailout, this stimulus package that the airlines were considered a national asset and were going to be protected. And when you talk about $50 billion with, you know, billion with a B being distributed in the form of uh, grants and loan guarantees, you know, with a few conditions in there, it's obvious that there's a backstop that wasn't there in 2011 and 2008. So I think that, you know, this is going to hurt a little bit. It's going to jar our teeth as we go across this bump, but we're going to cross it and then get our momentum back up on the other side. And I, and I think that's an interesting point. 2008, I watched, especially when you were talking about people that were furloughed for the second time, I watched many peers decide to leave the industry altogether at that point, where they said, hey, I can't handle this. This isn't an industry that is sustainable for me and my family, and they never came back. Where, you know, four months ago, this is one of the most exciting times I've seen in the airline industry with hiring, you know, out of control. Everybody that I know in the Air Force is trying to get out to get that legacy job. And here we are only a couple of weeks later and the sky has fallen. Well, I'll I'll throw this out, Ryan. I'm not here to preach to anybody or bring my spiritual beliefs into this because quite frankly, I don't think I'm a good enough role model. I swear too much. I have a temper and, you know. Just a fighter pilot. That's all, you know. (laughs) I'm I'm not your local preacher, but I do have faith. And and, and what I found in every single downturn that I've been through, every, every time this happens, both individually and as a family, we look back and we find some pretty big benefits out of it. And even beyond that, you know, I've seen, I've seen some societal benefits from some of the hard times too. And I think we're all looking at a country right now that's pulling together, that's trying to unify, that's trying to help each other. And I, I think that bodes well for whatever we're going to have on the backside of this. But, you know, you're, you're a financial guy. And if I, ha- I ran a talk this morning, of ask Albie anything for some of my Emerald Coast clients where they can call in and just shoot the breeze. And one of the points that one of the guys brought up was he goes, you know, everybody told me that you have to be careful in this career field. You, you have to plan on a downside. But, you know, my wife and I said, hey, maybe it's good that we saw this early. So we'll always have this in the back of our mind. And I'm like, I, I think that's a very realistic uh, approach to this. You know, Absolutely. the rule of thumb that, you know, the old captains that have been through a furlough or two or a merger will tell you is, you know, don't buy your captain's house as a first officer. Always live a pay grade below where you are. You know, keep a little powder dry. And when things are all rainbows and unicorns at the airlines, it's hard not to get caught up in the siren song. I mean, there have been times that uh, I've been – picking up a two-week trip at overtime pay that basically is as much as I used to make in a year as a young officer in the Air Force. I mean, those are pretty heady experiences, but they're not always going to be there. 
And the discipline and the financial planning that I'm sure you espouse is, you know, make hay when the sun shines, prepare yourself, but understand that there may be some leaner times. And, you know, the biggest financial mistake I ever made in my life was in 2007, I overpaid for a piece of property in Northwest Florida. I bought a horse farm. It was a riding stable. And I had a list of reasons that I could justify the mortgage payment. The first one was I thought I could do riding lessons and boarding and actually make the place pay for itself. And then below that, I was 100 numbers from Captain and on the 727 at FedEx. I could upgrade to wide body. <laughs> and of course, I had, a thriving, uh, I had a thriving interview consulting business going. Well, in, Jan- or in December of 2007, Congress uh, passed the Fair Treatment for Pilots Act, which raised the retirement age from 60 to 65. Yep. And across the industry, people were clapping or uh, grimacing, depending on their perspective. But in our house, that was like a needle going across a record. All of a sudden, half my income basically stopped with the stroke of that pin. So that was a pretty big day in our house. Of course, 2008, the financial crisis follows. So I got the double whammy of my business dries up. I'm going backwards in my airlines because we had some over 65 pilots that were actually coming back and returning to captain seats. And then the economy kind of fell out from under us. And I found myself in 2008, 2009, having to dip into my savings to pay the mortgage on this place. Not only was it not paying for itself or was I not keeping up with it, but it was eating into some hard-earned savings. Sadly, I was just going to say, sadly, I find this to be a, a problem that happens quite often in the airline industry where people are out kicking their coverage rather than being disciplined. You know, they're they're trying to buy that captain house a little bit too early, assuming that those those uh, paychecks they're getting are going to continue forever. And as we've seen multiple times, that's just not the case. Well, it certainly was the lesson for me. And, you know, the good news is, and, and what came out of that was for the next dozen years, I hoarded cash and I took on no new debt. And it wasn't until Last year, 2019, I moved to Park City, Utah. That's this fireplace in the background here. I replaced a paid-for company asset, an airplane, with a newer model. I've got a Cirrus now. I've got a daughter in private school and another daughter in vet school. So I am once again a mere mortal with a lot of money going out. The difference between now and back then was, you know, over the last dozen years, and this is where I don't want to run into conflicting guidance with a, with a professional financial planner. But I probably kept higher cash margins, cash reserves, liquid assets than most financial advisors would recommend. And part of that's because I was living overseas in Hong Kong. And I knew, even though when we first moved over there, it was everything was great, that any given day, things could go south. And we needed the ability to come back and relocate. And I wanted to have a down payment for a house basically available, along with a comfortable pad of living expenses. So that's, that's in fact what we ended up doing. And in June and July of 2019, when things started to get a little bit precarious socially in Hong Kong, we made the decision to relocate back to the US. And I'm glad that we, we did. And I'm also glad that I had saved because that let us buy the captain's house now that I'm actually a captain and we're doing fine. How much of those decisions go back on the fact that you were leveraged before and kind of got burned and, and felt that? I mean, that just every, changed a little bit. Every single one. But, but even more important, here's a lesson that I want everybody to know. We have a beautiful house in Park City. 
It's about 5,000 square feet. It's a fluke of a house in Park City. We've got a swimming pool, you know, um, who has a, who, who has a uh, <laughs> resort? It, 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 I would have got the house without it. I actually like the house and, and in many ways think it might be better without the swimming pool, but that's not the point. The point is this. I don't have to have this house to be happy because I've had a lot less and I'm fully prepared if I need to, to walk away from this house, sell it, have a very modest townhome. Because again, the lessons I learned in 2001 and 2002 and 2008 is if I can go over and be 10 minutes from the ski slopes and I can ski, if I can ride my bike on the bike trails, you know, when I'm out there on the bike trails in Park City, there are people that live in $40 million estates on the slopes of Deer Valley. There are also people that are sharing an apartment that work, you know, as bartenders at one of the restaurants downtown. And we're all on the bike trails together. And it really doesn't matter where we go home. Uh, the sun's shining on all of us. The resources are there. So the biggest thing that, you know, I learned in my own financial life is that there's been periods I've had plenty of money and there's been periods that I've had very little extra money and it's been scary. But what I've found is if I focus on the important stuff, family, health, activities, and look at the rest as just stuff and resources and tools, emotionally, I can deal with the ups and downs a whole lot smoother. The other thing I've learned is a little bit of faith, a little bit of confidence, and a lot of hard work. You know, I don't think anybody, uh, and you're a financial planner, if you were to sit down and say, no kidding, how do I actually do when I pick stocks and recommend buy and sell points and grade myself? I'm pretty sure you wouldn't say I'm 100. You might not even say I'm 95. You know, I, I, I don't know. But I know nobody bats a thousand. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to overshoot or undershoot every once in a while. Forgive yourself. Understand that's just part of it. But focus on the main things. Focus on taking care of your family, staying healthy, rolling with the punches. Money's going to come. Money's going to go. If you work, it, and, and the other thing that I found too, through all these experiences that I had, 2002, 2008, is the relationships that I developed and nurtured and tendered when things were good were still very valuable when things went south. So you and kind of find out who your, your real friends are? or You find out who your friends are. And, and more importantly, if you do business in an equitable and trustworthy manner, people will reach out to you with other opportunities. There's going to be other job offers. There's going to be you know, if you're a person who treats people with kindness, if you're a person who I trust to be responsible, if you show up to work on time, if you take pride in your work as an airline pilot or whatever, and suddenly you find yourself out of work, people are still going to need cars. People are still going to need services, you know? And when I need somebody I can trust to do some of these jobs, you go for people that are quality people. And I found, you know, when I talked to pilots that have been furloughed in 2002, three, and four, about how they got through that. Somebody asked me in another podcast, hey, what, what do you recommend as far as jobs? And I go, well, there's probably about 150 to 200,000 airline pilots in our industry in the United States right now, which means there's 150 to 200,000 different skill sets and things that people are good at. And I'm not here to tell you which one's right for you. But I saw people go back and do DOD contracting work. I saw people doing uh, construction. I saw people getting involved in restaurants or becoming entrepreneurial family businesses. I saw people doing things like ServePro or 
cleaning services. I saw people after 2008 buy some distressed properties and clean them up and, and ultimately flip them at a profit. So what I found was that the people who had a good attitude when things were tough, the people who stuck together, the people who did things ethically, always seemed to end up landing on their feet. And almost to a man or woman, when I talked to them afterwards, they would tell me that there was something good that came out of that downturn, something that they learned about themselves or, or did as a family. See, now, and I'll be, what, I'm, what I'm gathering from a lot of the stuff you talk about, I mean, there's, you know, that there, things will come out okay on the other side through hard work and honesty. But uh, let me bring it up in a different perspective. If you were a young pilot right now and you're dealing with this, or let's say you even got hired at Delta two years ago and you thought you're going to have this amazing career and now you're worried about your job, and I'll bring it even a little bit more emotional. You have a daughter who's flying airplanes right now, right? Yeah. So what, what advice would you be giving to them right now about this industry when they are scared and about to, I mean, worst case scenario, we know that there's some regional pilots or even Air Force pilots that had to walk away from their old job to come interview at an airline and now they might not have a job. Suddenly the rug has been pulled out from under them and they have no clue what is going to happen with their future. They might have young babies at home. What's the advice? What advice would you give your daughter? Well, uh, I'll talk about a couple of things. First of all, my daughter is in a very fortunate place because she's single. And although she has a, a bow right now that, that she might have a future with, both of them are regional pilots and they're focused on their careers. But she called me you know, a couple of weeks ago concerned and, and, and kind of, I think, grappling with the idea. I, and I, I tell people, I think that a lot of people of her generation you know, when we say, hey, be careful, manage your finances, this is a cyclical industry, they're like, yeah, 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 but, you know, the industry's matured, it's consolidated, it's much healthier, we've got a good economy. You know, they listen to us talk about the furloughs of 2002, like we're talking about the Civil War or something. It's a history lesson, but <laughs> not directly applicable to them. Uh, so when they have that, oh, shit, you weren't kidding, this could really happen to me moment, and they have to sit there and digest it, it, it it's a little bit emotionally overwhelming. So let's talk about the young light on their feet professional like my daughter and what I told her. And she's like, you know, if she's a first officer right now for SkyWest in Colorado Springs, and she's saying, hey, you know, if I were to get furloughed, there's no reason really to stay in the Springs. I'd probably be better off going somewhere where there's more jobs or opportunity, you know, and I told her all along, you're always welcome to come home if you need to. But I said, I think you're focusing on the wrong issue right now. You are focusing on where am I going to live? And I said, you know, you live in a rented basement apartment with a roommate and everything you own will fit in the back of your car, which is paid for. You don't have a mortgage. You don't have any kids. You're not married. You're completely free. And I said, what I would be doing is looking for where the jobs are. And there's always work somewhere. Okay. So in aviation, I said a couple of things that have always fascinated me. And we both considered before she ended up working at this regional as time building options, one was going up to Alaska and looking at some of the 135 charter work uh, or even the, some of the smaller 121 companies that are up there. There are, seems like they're, they're always looking for pilots. Yeah. I'm sitting um, at Anchorage right now and talk about some amazing flying up here in Alaska. It's gorgeous. And I lived there for four years and fell in love with it. And it's part of the reason that I'm living in Park City now is, you know, it really impugned for me the uh, love of four seasons and snow and, and, uh, at the same time, Alaska was a bit remote for some family reasons. And, you know, Utah is a very nice compromise, but a lot of my heart's still up there. The other place was uh, in the Marianas Islands in the Pacific. There's several 
uh, intra-island 135 and uh, flight schools and things like that that do some inter-island flying. And I thought, what a fascinating thing to go to Guam or Saipan or Tinian and live and work there for six months or a year. And I told her, you know, you've got this great opportunity here if you were to get furloughed to kind of take a sabbatical from the traditional airline life and go try something a little more wild and exotic. And, you know, it take your bow with you. He's in the same boat. He's as light on his feet. You guys could go, you know, have some adventures together. See, and that to me sounds so exciting. You're young. You don't have a care in the world. You don't have any anchors holding you down. But then we transition to a an Air Force pilot that, that put in his retirement papers and he just hit his 20 years and he's done and he United already offered him a job and suddenly he doesn't know when his class date's going to come and he's well, got two now, kids. Now we're talking about another end of the spectrum. We'll get back to the middle. <laughs> the, easy, the easy spectrum is the, hey, I don't, I don't own crap anyway. What's the difference, right? I can go anywhere. And then we exactly. have a retired military officer who, don't get me wrong, living on straight retirement pay would be difficult. But uh, here's a couple of stories from, from people in that era. We took our house and we cleaned it up and we put it on the market for a rental because in our town, there's always somebody looking for a rental. And we did something we always wanted to do. We bought an RV. And for a year, we went and drove around the country and lived out of our RV and did what we said we always wanted to do. So they took the little career detour as an opportunity to go, hey, I'm going to take a break here. I had another friend who was actually a squadron mate that retired. He was an F-15 pilot with me at Spangdalem. And there was no financial crisis. There was no job crisis. Quite frankly, he could have been scooped up. But after 20 years of grinding it out, he made the conscious decision before he started his next career. He was going to do that. He was going to drive all around the you know four corners of the U.S., continental U.S., and up to Alaska. And that's what they did for a year in an RV. So if you can if you already have some hard assets that you can store, rent, sell, you know, once again, you have the chance to have a life sabbatical, go back to school, work on a degree, take that time to get the master's or learn that language or play that instrument or, you know, those things. Now that doesn't pay the mortgage, you know, well, and I think insurance. something so that I very much enjoy about talking with you is you always see the bright side of things. You always see the opportunity where in a time like this, there is nothing but doom and gloom. I mean, if you turn on the TV, that's all there is. And I think it has the ability to bring a lot of people in that situation down. And yeah. I think you have a unique set of skills to, to see the bright side. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that I do is I limit the amount of time that I watch television and, and dive into the media. I tend to try to pull news rather than have it flow over me. So I will log on and I'll look at a couple of websites. I'll pull up some information. I'll search some things. But, but then it goes off because I think the constant barrage of stuff, I mean, the media is designed to sell products and sell advertising, right? Exactly. So they, know how to they know how to manipulate your emotions. It's what they sell to, to the advertisers. I mean, if they can convince Coca-Cola that a 30-second spot will make you thirsty uh, for their product, how could not listening to 30 minutes of their bombarded message during the show not have some impact on your emotions? So I think... That was one of the things that I learned in 2002 that really helped me. And in 2008, get busy doing something else. 2002, a lot of it for me was getting outside. Go ride the bike, go to the beach, get away from it, enjoy what's free, enjoy what's out there. Quit worrying about the money and count your blessings. And that helped me. In 2008, I was very fortunate in that while my business had dried up and I was very much in debt, 
I still had my day job, my FedEx job, and I had just converted over to the MD-11. So I kind of made it my project. And I, and I talked to the family about this. And I said, you guys have the veto power here. You can rein me in when it's required. But I'm going to try to work my way through this. I'm going to grab as much money as I can when I can. And a byproduct of that was I got to fly over the world. I made some money. And I got good at my craft. That's really where I felt like I grew and developed as an airline pilot. For the first few years flying domestic in the 727, I felt like I was an F-15 pilot riding around in the 727. And occasionally, <laughs> and occasionally I got to land it and I didn't screw it up too bad. But I never felt like I was a great airline pilot or that was I was necessarily great at my craft. I could get by. But when I went to the 11 and flew all over the world and really had the experience to be that global pilot, it opened my eyes. I really enjoyed the airplane. I enjoyed the, the stuff that came with it. And the way that I got past my financial crisis at the time, being underwater in a, in a big mortgage, was I worked my way through it. Now, I realize we're talking about, hey, the pilot jobs may not be available right now. But my point is that the therapy of diving into whatever work you have at the time or whatever project is good for you mentally. You know, don't sit around and dwell. My grandpa always used to say, get to getting, you know, get to getting and doing something. But I always talk to my clients also about that is, is you got to be very conscious about the, the nut that you have to crack monthly. And we're talking about that big mortgage and those toys because that does, it creates a lot of stress for people. And so, you know, just being careful about that. Well, you know, let's talk about toys for a minute because I had this conversation this morning. I think there's a tendency, especially when guys make the leap from the regional to the major airline or from the military to the airline to want to be a little bit ahead of themselves, you know, to get that Porsche, to get that camper, to get that boat. We've all been there. You're excited. You finally have arrived. You're finally making the big bucks. You're, you're going to go splurge on yourself a little bit. You've worked so hard to get here. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to do every once in a while. Take care of yourself. Enjoy the fruits of your labor. But a big difference between me in 2003 and four and 2020 is I wait a little longer now and I pay for stuff in cash. And that does a couple of things for you. One, it, it makes you slow down just a little bit and make sure, hey, do I really, really want this? Is this worth the 15, 20, 30, 50 grand that I'm talking about plopping down here? Um, it also gives you a hard asset that you can liquidate if things go the other way. You're not going to get full price. You know that. But, uh, you know, as an example, I have a couple of Toyota FJs in my garage out there. They're kind of a frivolous purchase. I bought one in 2014. And in 2016, when I realized it was worth more than I paid for it, uh, I bought another used one. But I paid cash for both. And I'll be honest, I enjoy them. I'm proud of them. I have fun with them. But if I need to liquidate those to pay for something that's a little more important to take care of my family, I can ride around in a 2002 beat to shit Subaru and I'm going to be just as happy. I'm still going to be in Park City. I'm still going to get to go over to the ski resorts. I'm still going to ride on the bike trails. Life's going to be fine. So the difference is I'm not making payments on them. They're, uh, they're not a liability against me right now. And once again, if the market's down, I don't think I could capture, you know, maybe every penny that they're worth, but there's something I could liquidate if I needed to. So I will say that, and you asked me this earlier, what's different? What have I learned? I am very loath to take on any kind of debt. And uh, it, it does make it a lot more comfortable when your income's down to go, hey, I've got the mortgage and the utilities to worry about. And when it's mortgage and utilities, 
you could probably find a way to get through. Maybe the luxuries will slide a little bit, but you can make it happen. When it's, you know, the camper, the two cars, the private school tuition, the house, the utilities, that's where a little bit of income disruption gets very stressful and frightening. So again, maybe, and I'm not a Dave Ramsey guy, okay? I'm not telling you that you can't have a few nice things and I'm not telling you that any debt is bad debt. I'm just saying that uh, you need to be very judicious in your choices and think about times like these when you take on debt and make sure that it's something you'd be comfortable hanging on to if things turned a little bit south. So the market's unpredictable, the future's unpredictable, and I try to teach my clients to not try to time the market, to not try to predict the future because anything that can happen out there could drastically affect what tomorrow's going to bring. But you have an interesting perspective of the airline industry. You've been studying it and been involved in it for many, many years. Where are we today and where are we going to be six to eight months from now? Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things going on that are very positive right now. Let's talk about the macro. Right now, the country's basically been told, stay at home, don't go anywhere, shelter in place. How is that going to feel after three weeks? I'm a little stir crazy right now. I'm ready to get in one of my cars and go out and drive down a country road just to get the hell out of the house. And, and I'm thrilled to have everybody home. And it's a nice house. And I mean, there's no, uh, there's no resentment or friction with anybody in it right now. But once you tell somebody, yep, you got to stay there, you're under house arrest, Boy, that just makes a little part of it inside of you go, I'm ready to get the hell out of here. You lost a little bit of control. Yeah. We got 300 million people that have been told to stay home. What's going to happen when, when we get a little daylight? Let's go to Disneyland. Let's go to Cozumel. Let's go to Glacier National Park. Let's get the fuck out of the house and go have some fun. And, <laughs> and I think that demand, when it hits, is going to create a surge in sales of new vehicles. I think it's going to create a boom for the travel industry. I think that people are going to, once they no longer feel like any service they touch is going to make them sick, they're going to be going nuts to get out, get moving, and, and get back to being you know, busy, fast-moving Americans. So in the macro, I think once we get through this, the surge in the momentum is going to be pretty good. So how does that affect the airline industry? Well, American went and recognizing they're going to have a little bit of a, a downturn here offered some early retirements to a bunch of pilots. One of my coaches uh, is a counselor who is married to a very senior American pilot. And the numbers he has is between five and 600 people have said, yeah, we're going to do this. So American was already hiring quite a few pilots. Now they're going to have a gap at the top of another five to 600. That, that bodes pretty well for hiring. I don't know how the airlines are going to manage their demand and their yields. Are they going to say we want to reduce capacity a little bit or do we want to go back to where we were, you know, before the coronavirus hit? If they cut capacity, there'll be some reductions in flights, there'll be some reductions in pilots required, but I just think with the economy charging back at all, you know, it, it's hard to sit there and not say why don't we add a flight? We'll make this much money. Hey, why don't we open this city pair? We've got the loads, we've got the yields. So I think it's going to snap back fairly quickly. What I've been telling my clients is I'd like you to be hunkered down for 12 to 18 months, maybe 24 months as a worst case, but it wouldn't shock me if we aren't interviewing again in six to eight. So just hang in there. What I have seen in the past is a little bit of 
move by some of the legacy carriers out there to try to capture good pilots, highly qualified regional pilots like line check airmen, guys coming out of the military with good service records, maybe a little bit sooner than they were even a year ago, because they understand that uh, while there may never be a pilot shortage, a good high quality pilot that's going to do well in training and be a good employee is a nice asset to get a hold of. And the tone and the way the airlines have approached our clients over the last couple of years is definitely with a little bit more respect than they might have shown, say, a decade ago. And I think it's because they realize the value of the pilots. So I think as soon as they can start to grab the pilots up again and, and get them in queue for training, I think we'll see that happen because you can't change demographics. You know, the legacies are going to lose thousands of pilots each year to retirements. And uh, I, I just think that uh, this hiring trend, while it may hit a little bit of a speed bump here, I don't think it's fundamentally going to change. I think when we look on a graph, you know, 10 years from now, we'll see a blip and somebody's going to go, what was that? And they're going to go, oh yeah, that was that Corona thing. Yeah. Okay. Next. But it, in, in hindsight, it's not going to be, it's not going to have the impact on the industry that 9-11 did, or even I think the 2008 slowdown did. Okay. Just one guy's opinion. And, and my, my father always taught me to learn from other people's mistakes. Try not to make it on by yourself. Now, sometimes doing it by yourself, you learn the lesson, you know, it's, it's harder Absolutely. lesson to learn. But I look at this as I think it's going to be a V recovery. That's my, my prediction, kind of like you're saying, because the economy and all, it's not a sy- systemic problem. But there are definite lessons to be learned from this scare, you know, and, and let's say it's an eight to 12 month setback. What are the lessons that, that these uh, pilot that's at the indus- in the industry now and a pilot that's trying to get, what, are the, what is the lesson that we need to take away from this? I've got a few lessons, but the first is never get complacent. I've seen so many people, you know, I've had people ask me before, hey, man, with, with all the money you must be making with your business, why are you flying rubber dog shit around in the middle of the night? And I just laugh and I go, you know, I don't know if you know what CTI is, but Crew Training International uh, started in the 1990s by a couple of FedEx pilots, ex-Navy Top Gun instructors. And ultimately, they developed some CRM training programs that other uh, organizations, particularly the military, started buying and using. And this business grew. And in 2008, Al Mullen, who was an MD-11 captain at FedEx, and president of the company, got a contract with the U.S. Air Force to provide manning and bodies to support some operations out at Creech, the uh, UAV center out there. It's a $50 million contract. Now, Al didn't make $50 million because he had lots of people and organizations and, and stuff to pay for along the way, but it was a pretty, pretty big deal. It was such a big deal, as a matter of fact, that CTI went from being a small business, i.e. small business set aside, to being categorized as a medium business. What's my perspective on this? Al worked at FedEx through all of that. Al never gave up his day job. And you're like, why? And it's because... Like me, he had seen feast and famine. He had seen you know business cycles before and knew that this, well, this was great. This can come and go. So one of the things when I look back over my 20 years in the industry, my wife has worked and not worked during that period. The most recent non-working period was four years in Hong Kong, you know, enjoying the expat lifestyle and traveling and networking over there and just having some fantastic adventures. We're back in Park City now. And even before this coronavirus thing hit, she decided that she wanted to 
find employment again, maybe do something a little bit different. A working spouse, especially if, if the spouse is in an industry that's not tied to yours, is a great insurance policy because that can keep insurance benefits, a little bit of needed income coming in in a pinch. I've been blessed in that I have a wife who enjoys working. I realize some people have special needs kids and wives or families that just don't really want to do that. But if you're a person who's kind of on the fence, one of the things that I would say is your life partner can be a great resource when things get shitty. So if they want to work, don't be the chauvinistic, discouraging you know, husband. No woman of mine is going to work. Why would you want to work? I'm making $250,000 a year. Why would you want to go work at this $35,000, $40,000 position? Well, I can tell you a couple of times in my life when I knew that my wife had health care if we needed it and some benefits if things turned south, I was pretty damn glad she had a $35,000 or $40,000 a year job. A few years later, the 2008, uh, I mentioned buying that farm and some of the downturn there, she went back to work again. Only this time she found herself a fifty dollars and then later $75,000 position in educational leadership. So having a working spouse can be a, a great asset. For those of you that have the option to continue in some capacity in the Air National Guard reserve component, I have never flown with a single pilot who looked over at me and said, you know what? I spent way damn too much time in the Air National Guard. I should have quit years ago. What a waste of my time. But I've flown with a hell of a lot of guys, looked over and said, you know what? If I'd have stuck it out for eight more years, I'd have retired four years ago and I'd be getting a check now in three years. I absolutely agree with that. (laughs) And the Air National Guard, the reserve component, um, it can be frustrating. It can be tedious. And quite frankly, it can cost you a lot of income in lost opportunity at your primary job, your airline. I tell people it's an insurance policy that you pay for, but the premium you pay is with your time, not with dollars. But I really think it's an insurance policy that has probably saved more airline careers and more people than any other one facet I can think of. And I know it, it allowed me to leave the active duty when the Twin Towers were still smoldering in 2002 and launch what's turned out to be one heck of a great career. So I'm grateful for that. It also, you know, there's a lot of other benefits to it. I'm, I'm not here to be a guard recruiter. The other things, if you're a regional pilot, if you're not a, a military uh, background pilot, I say, what other skill sets do you have? And this is what I'm talking about my do- with my daughter, because uh, she did not go into the Air National Guard, although she's considering reapplying and maybe, uh, maybe trying to, to do that at some point in the future. What other skill sets do you have? What do you like? What, what's interesting to you? And if you can do some general contracting on the side or, you know, floor renovation, I've met so many people flying around that have these incredible talents and we'll get in a conversation and, you know, I'll ask, well, tell me about that. And they go, you really want to see? Yeah, I do. So they break out the iPad or the iPhone and they start showing me pictures of, you know, a marble floor that they've put in somewhere or a project that they've done for somebody else. And I go, wow, that's incredible, you know, and these folks would probably be handymen or contractors, but for the fact they can make more money as airline pilots. Okay. But having a side business and, and something on the side like that can definitely help dampen some of the downsides. And, you know, especially in aviation, I think this is important, Ryan. We see the obvious threats. When, when those planes got flown into the towers, when Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns failed, it was obvious that there were some big issues 
But we all know pilots who went to get a medical and the doctor went, uh-oh, or yeah, you're going to need this drug and you can't fly for two years if you take it. So our own coronavirus, our own 9-11 can happen in our own professional careers any given day. And nobody around to the left or right will bat an eye or even notice, but it can rock your world. Part of the joy for me of running Emerald Coast is I have something I'm good at that I enjoy where I feel like I add value and I help people. And if that's all I had, I could get up every morning and do that job, you know, nine to five, eight to six, whatever hours I needed to, and not only make a living at it and support my family, but have a lot of joy, have a lot of pride, have a lot of stuff that I enjoyed about that. So that would be my advice too, is don't get complacent and go, well, I'm going to make $250,000, $350,000 a year as an airline captain. I can't really match that salary anywhere else. Why do I want to go do something on the side? Why don't I just fly an extra trip or two? Sounds like and diversification. It's exactly what it is. You know, you preach diversification with stocks and investment vehicles. I preach diversification in lifestyle and, and in interests so that you're not, you know, one dimensional and you can roll with the punches. Well, and I, I think bringing up the medical side of it is a very, very powerful point that nobody thinks about or considers. Well, it, it's happened to some friends of mine and I've got a couple of people on my team right now, one at United and one at FedEx that are, that are out on medicals and the extra income that they're making with Emerald Coast helps offset some of the, the loss of income but that's not the main reason I think they appreciate it. They appreciate it because they get up and they get to talk pilot stuff. They get to help pilots. They get to be in their career field, even though they're not actively moving metal right now. And I think that's important for their psyche and their recovery as well. Ryan, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, I'll ask for a moment here to add one more thing. I've talked about having you know, a diversification of skill sets and interests outside of, of your primary job, maybe some of them to help you mentally, maybe some of them to help you with the income. But the other thing that is just absolutely crucial and has carried me over so many of my low points is an active professional and social network. And that's what I was talking about earlier. Take care of the people you work with, take care, treat people with respect, build your network. And it's amazing to me how many times when I was at my lowest, somebody reached out with an opportunity or needed some help on something that, that was a game saver. The last time we had a big round of furloughs, 2008, the airline industry was, was hurting. Industries across were hurting, but there was one industry that was booming, and that was unmanned aerial vehicles because the surge and some of the things that were going on in Iraq and Afghanistan required a whole lot of overhead military surveillance. And, yeah, and it had, been, it had been dictated that there were going to be, I think, 50 caps that were going to be continually maintained in the AORs. And the Air Force at the time could man about 38 of them. And I don't remember from Schwartz or who the chief of staff of the Air Force was, but when he pushed back and said, hey, basically, we're doing the best we can, Secretary Gates fired him and said, well, thank you, but that's not good enough. What part of 50 didn't you understand? And that was the first time I ever really saw the Air Force finally give something besides lip service to letting warfighters be warfighters. And what they did, and this was that SAIC contract that I alluded to earlier, is they went out and said, we want some people to come back and we want people to be schedulers. We want people to be standabout officers. We want people to run the squadron so that our warfighters, our UAV operators and sensor operators can go into their job for 12 hours, do it and go home. 
they're not going to have any additional duties. Their primary duty is to be war fighters. And, you know, across the calf, a Hosanna from every fighter pilot who's ever wrote a Dear Boss letter, you know, was going up going, finally, somebody gets it. But it took firing a four star to get that message across. Well, when they realized they needed people with the kind of security clearances, when they needed all the uh, little pieces and parts to bring people into this, they uh, looked and said, where do we find these people? And it's funny because my phone started ringing. My network of friends and people in the DOD industry said, you work with a lot of airline pilots. You got anybody furloughed that might want to come out here and do this? And I said, well, let me run through the list and check. And I did. And I found them several. And here's the cool thing. Every person I found them was $3,000 in my pocket. You know, I was basically doing some, some staffing work for them. About the same time, there was a friend of mine who was working as a consultant for Augusta Westland. Augusta Westland was trying to sell a bunch of helicopters to the government of Trinidad and Tobago down in South America. And they had the helicopter, they had the platform, they had the training, but what they did not have was they didn't have a body to go down there and basically be the project manager. So I started scouring my Rolodex and I called a few retired Army colonels and Coast Guard people and Navy helicopter pilots. The problem was I couldn't find anybody that really wanted to jump on that. Well, I'm at simulator training, learning to fly the MD-11. My sim partner is one of those guys who used to be a flight engineer after 60 and they got rolled back. And those guys got a lot of resentment and flack from other pilots on the property because, quite frankly, they were coming back and kind of pushing us down in the seat. But I made the conscious decision that when I went to training, that I wasn't going to have that chip on my shoulder, that I was going to go with the attitude that this guy had been around the industry for 25 years, probably could teach me something. This was my first glass airplane. So I'm just going to go with a good attitude. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to do my best to be a friend with my, my training partner. And that's what I did. And we're talking maybe two weeks into the training and he sees me over there on a study break on my cell phone. And he asked, you know, you seem to be kind of busy between stuff. It looks like you got some stuff going on, not being nosy, but what do you do? So I briefly gave him a, hey, I'm looking for staffing people and this contract. And he says, well, I got a good friend. He used to be the president of Evergreen Helicopters, but he's over 60 and they decided to go with a younger man to kind of take over and they've just shoved him out. You want me to put you in touch with him? And I thought, <laughs> sure, why not? So I talked to this guy and in our first three minutes of introduction, I say, so what have you been up to? And he says, well, I just got hired by, uh, you know, I just finished up a project. I was down there as a consultant for the country of Trinidad and Tobago, helping them outline the specs for a new search and rescue helicopter. <laughs> and I immediately got giddy and went, you got to be kidding me. So we talked, I got his resume, got his information. I went back to Augusta Westland and I said, okay, I may have somebody, but here's what, it, here's what you got to pay. And I drew up a contract. And the punchline was, it was a $50,000 finder's fee for this guy. That $50,000 got me over the hump that year. All my financial problems basically evaporated because I decided to not be a dick to my training partner. I decided I was going to go with a good attitude and you know keep my networks open. So I could talk to you and bend your ear for hours about similar stories. But when you're down, when you're reeling, when you're looking for options, you know, your network of friends, of associates can be vital. 
and you might be just the solution to a problem that they're facing. So keep those contacts lubricated. You know, don't become a hermit. Stay engaged because you might need those contacts someday. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, being manipulative and saying, I want to be friends because one day this guy might do me a favor. These were people that I, I didn't, I wasn't nice to this captain because I thought he would throw me a $50,000 bonus. I did it because that's the kind of person, that's the kind of professional I wanted to be. You know, I, I didn't maintain my contacts with SAIC and the Creech contracts because I wanted work one day. I did it because these were my friends and contemporaries in the military, and I enjoyed staying in touch with them and seeing how they were doing. But it's amazing when the chips got down, how vital sometimes those contacts can be. So it's not just financial planning, it's personal planning. Build a network, take care of each other, treat each other with respect. And more often than not, when the chips are down, you're going to find you got a few more people in your camp helping you out than you might have expected. It's quite a story. I had uh, just a quick share here on my side. I had no real intention of ever getting into the industry I am. Not the flying side necessarily, but the, uh, the financial advising side. Um, I grew up, you know, came from very modest backgrounds, watched my family live paycheck to paycheck, and I never wanted to do that. So I went out and just got as much education as I could. And slowly realized over time that I had a lot of my military buddies that were just speculating and gambling with their money and didn't really know what they were doing. And so it started out where I was just helping them out. Over time, it became obvious that there was a serious need out there. Then I got hired with FedEx and I said, I'm never going to help any FedEx guys because I don't want to mix the two professions. Well, that all changed because you want to take care of people. And it's funny now because I know exactly what you're talking about, about waking up and knowing you're making a difference, knowing you're helping people. And I'm trying to teach people how to be disciplined from the, the start so that they never have to wake up with their back against the wall, hopefully, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, because they started doing the right things from the beginning. I always tell people that I'm not sure I'd be happy if I was just flying airplanes. I'd feel like I was wasting my life away a little bit at 35,000 feet. I'm not sure I'd be happy if I was just a financial advisor. I think I'd be miserable because I'd feel like I'd have to go find a new client. But the mix of the two of them and having still that network that you know I learned in the military like you probably did, and having that network at FedEx and other airlines is, is very, very powerful, and especially powerful when you can help people. It really is. And it, it, it gives you something every day to kind of sink your teeth into. And that makes, that makes a tough day a lot smoother. I would agree. I wanted to, you know, personally thank you for your, your time and talking to us today. I know you're very well respected, um, not only at FedEx, but across the, uh, the airline industry. And I think the biggest thing I've gotten out of the conversation today or the times we've talked in the past is the perspective you bring on other aspects of life. And maybe not just what I'm asking, but it's like, hey, open your eyes and see this beautiful world that we have and all the, all the positive things you do have in your life. And, and don't focus on you know what's bad right now or what's a little bit stressful right now. And I think that's a powerful message. Well, I hope it helps. I hope it adds value. I certainly appreciate the chance to, you know, share what I've got with other people. And, you know, if it adds value, great. I certainly don't have all the answers. And I don't, you know, I've tried to share my own situation to let people know I'm not just some guy who owns a business going, oh yeah, I'll I'll throw you a few little tidbits here, but it, this doesn't really affect me. You know, my wife was halfway through the process of becoming a Delta flight attendant when this happened. And I mentioned, you know, we've bought a house, we've uh, got a kid in private school, got a kid in college. This affects all of us. 
and I want to get through it as smoothly and aggressively as everybody else. And, um, you know, I watched the tremendous hit to the portfolio. It's no fun. I think what separates me maybe from some of your younger clients is I've been through this a couple of times and I've seen the light on the other side. So I can't tell you what day it's going to be there, but I've seen enough to know it's coming. So I'm not going to worry about it. Never the right time to panic and you got to play the long-term game. That's how you're going to win. Play by the rules. Exactly. Well, we hope you have enjoyed this conversation on the Pilot's Advisor between Aaron Hagen and the Pilot's Advisor, Ryan Fleming. And if today's conversation or if something else from this podcast gives you the thought of needing to get some assistance or some help when it comes to your financial and retirement planning uh, with investing and saving and thinking about the future from a financial perspective, uh, Ryan's always there to help. And you can certainly reach out to him at any point in time if you've got questions, want to run a few things by him want to have a visit or a, a, a Zoom call or a conversation remotely about what you can do to better improve uh, your position and your standing. You can certainly do that by calling or texting 843-475-3038. Ryan meets with folks all across the country to help them prepare to get to and through their retirement years, certainly. 843-475-3038 is the number to call or text to reach Ryan directly, or you can go to FlemingFG. Dot com to find out more information. That's FlemingFG.com. And we'll put all the contact info that you need in the description or the show notes of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time right back here on The Pilot's Advisor. Information is for illustrative purposes only and does not constitute tax, investment, or legal advice. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action.